I'll always tell it like it is, that's the bottom line If you just living to exist, you want borrow time Don't ever let them take your soul, no, no, no Don't ever let them take your soul, no, no, no I'll always tell it like it is, that's the bottom line If you just living to exist, you want borrow time Hey guys, Jim Wahlberg here from The Bottom Line, and uh, yeah, we're back. We're still quarantined. We're still living in, in COVID times, if you will, and, um, but we're so happy to be working, and we're grateful to be able to, you know, connect with you guys on this level, and uh, I'm super excited uh, you know, we've had a lot of great guests, a lot of really high profile people, athletes, actors, actresses, you name it. Um, but we have Miss America, the current Miss America, not Miss America from 1932. And those were other shows. We have the current Miss America, Camille Schreier, and she is here to talk to us about what we talk about, Right. Her platform is trying to eradicate this opioid crisis. Her career goals are she's in school to be a pharmacist, unless she already graduated. Did you already graduate, Camille? I am still in school. school. So she's still in school, and she's going to be a pharmacist, and she comes to us by way of the pharmacist, Dan Schneider. Schneider. Dan, my friend, who we've been, um, we were in the middle of, I think four or five episodes with Dan right now. And uh, Dan said to me, hey, listen, I got connected with Miss America, right? And I thought, you know, Dan's story is a little wild, right? So I was like, is Dan hallucinating? He's like, no, no, you don't understand. Me and Miss America are friends. Miss America reached out to me and um, and she, this, she's very concerned about this this epidemic that we're living through. She's very concerned about this particular problem. She's going to be a pharmacist and, um, and she's using this platform that she has this national, really global platform to talk about a problem that has so much stigma and so much negativity and sadness and brokenness connected to it that you would think somebody with, you know, where, where it's beauty and all these other things, you, you would think they would love it if you connected yourself with something that was a little happier, I think, than this sort of really dark and sad issue. So I thank you for being here. Um, and I wanted to get right into it. I want to first just tell us a little bit about you, who you are, where you're from, and then we'll get yeah. into why this epidemic. Absolutely. So I am a self-proclaimed nerdy scientist. I have loved science my entire life and I grew up outside of Philadelphia. I always wanted to be some form of a scientist and I ended up going to college and getting a bachelor of science degree in biochemistry and another one in systems biology. I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do with it at that point, but I had the opportunity to intern in a pharmaceutical company during my undergrad. And I really enjoyed understanding, you know, the the business of science. And Mm -hmm. that's a perfect example of that. Now, 
that was an experience in terms of understanding a lot of the ethical issues that come along with the pharmaceutical industry. It's not all bad, but of course we've seen throughout history with, especially with opioids that sometimes the ethics of what happens aren't always there, but I wanted to, to work in a pharmacy com pharmaceutical company. And so I worked under a doctor of pharmacy and I was like, wait a second, you can be a pharmacist and work in a pharmaceutical company. Who knew? Which seems obvious to me now, but I enrolled in pharmacy school with the hope to use that education to go and be an executive in the pharmaceutical industry after I made my way up the, the corporate ladder. And I've always been interested in medicine. My mom is a nurse. I grew up, I was always a kid that was sick. So I always was taking medicine as a kid. Um, it was something I was comfortable with. And I thought it was just so amazing how science could give us these opportunities to cure ourselves of ailments. But again, with great power comes great responsibility with these medications. And that is something that I've now been able to advocate for as a doctor of pharmacy student and as Miss America. And I also ended up becoming Miss America. I didn't really mention that. Um, yeah, <laughs> that's been a new venture via December of 2019, a job that I, I competed for my local competition in April of 2019. First time was like, Hey, this is a bucket list item for me before I get too old. Did it one time, went to Miss Virginia and I won Miss Virginia. And then I, six months later went to Miss America and won. So it was not something that I had dreamed of my entire life, but it was something I think that happened at the right time um, in history for all of the things that are happening right now and the huge sure. issues that are facing our country. So you just decided a bucket list. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be Miss Virginia. I'm just going to give it a shot. I'm just going to show up and see what happens and you win. And then a year later you win Miss America. Pretty much. I used to compete in, you know, pageants per se as a teenager, but yeah. I mean, you weren't even allowed to wear makeup until you were like 15. So it was mostly focused Good. on communication skills. It was a really great experience. I learned how to interview at like 15 and 16, and that really helped me be successful in my undergraduate education and going into internships and career. But I always kind of was like, well, could I be Miss America, but I don't have a talent. And so I ended up doing a science demonstration as my talent and never thought that I would win that local competition. But I had seen an yeah. ad on Facebook like two weeks before and was like, you know what? I might as well sign up for this. I only live once. Um, and it led me here. So I couldn't write that story myself if I tried to. <laughs> so you couldn't have used fishing as a talent? Honestly, I... There's actually a, funny enough, there is a rule where you cannot bring live animals on stage. Um, in 1939, someone brought a horse on stage and the horse fell off the stage into the then orchestra pit. So no live animals mm -hmm. on stage, or maybe I could have brought some fish and done some fishing demonstrations. So we, we're <laughs> talking about the opioid mm -hmm. epidemic. And I know you're from yeah. Pennsylvania. You grew up in Pennsylvania and you're not far from, from Philadelphia. And yeah. uh, you're a very young person. Opioids have been around your entire life. And this epidemic has really just been on a, an upward trajectory your entire life. It's been a real yeah. thing. It's been something. So when you were a young, young girl, you're, you are a young woman now. But when you were a young girl, um, you were aware of this epidemic was already happening. Were you aware of people that were, were using drugs? Did you know people that had lost family members? I mean, you were living in a hot spot for sure. I mean, the numbers, 
in Pennsylvania are outrageous. So I feel really lucky. I have no personal connection to the opioid crisis. And I feel like I am one of the few people in this entire world that can say that. Now, my grandmother had fentanyl patches because she was a cancer patient when I was a kid, mm -hmm. but I had no idea what that was. And she was pretty physically addicted to that. But it was one of those situations where it's like, okay, we have someone who is battling cancer. Maybe is that the appropriate use of a fentanyl patch? So that's number one. Number two, I was comfortable with the idea of medications, but I never, I didn't know what an opioid was. I didn't know really about drugs. I was really lucky to be in an environment that was, it really was a, a clean environment for right. me to grow up in. And for that, I don't have a lot of personal experience but I do live 40 minutes from where people are, and children are exposed to this every single day. Um, and I actually didn't even realize how much the opioid crisis has grown since I was born um, mm -hmm. until I watched The Pharmacist, that Netflix docuseries that Dan Schneider is in. I didn't, I thought this was a new problem as I was yeah. hearing this more on the news, but I didn't fully understand from my perspective how long this has been going on. Right. Um, and when I went to pharmacy school and I started to learn about opioids and naloxone and the epidemic that is happening, I mm. my eyes were wide open and I'm like, why are people not talking about this more? Because this is a huge issue. And then coming back to my home state and seeing how much it is affecting my own, almost my hometown of being someone from a suburb of Philadelphia, which is I mean, we, our neighborhood of Kensington in Philadelphia is particularly hard hit in a way that when I actually got to visit the DEA this past um, winter, I mentioned I was from the Philadelphia area and they immediately were like, we know about Kensington. This place right. is a huge hotspot. So it's been my mission really now to not only advocate for general medication and drug safety, because mm -hmm. that's a huge piece of this and something that can help to prevent abuse if we're making sure that we're taking care of each other. But also, what can I do to, to make this a normal conversation and to have someone in a role like Miss America not be afraid to destigmatize this, make this a normal topic to talk about? And it's a medical condition. We, you know, there's this huge piece of weight and responsibility that's placed on these people that are addicted and who have fought addiction and continue to. And you can make one bad decision or you can end up with a prescription from a doctor that leads you to an addiction. And even if it is a one bad personal decision, is that worth, it's not, it's, that's not worth the angst that these people are ending up going through. It's, mm -hmm. we need to treat it like if someone has diabetes, we treat them with insulin, we bring them to a doctor, we have chronic care that's brought to them. Why are we not doing that for people who are battling the disease of addiction? That's my question and what I really want to bring to the forefront this year. Right. You know, you brought up a very, very important point, and that is the stigma, right? So these, these, these poor families uh, yeah. around the country that have had to bury their children, right? Yeah. So not only do they have to bury their children, right, but then they also... Yeah have many of them have started to experience the stigma long before that they got to that point right it's the thing is is I remember I spoke to a guy one time and he was sort of like he's like a marketing guru right and he he said to me you people and I said oh I'm you people now right he said you people want everybody to look at this thing like a disease right 
The problem is, is that when, when a person calls their neighbor and says, my child has cancer, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they send you a casserole. They send their kids over to cut your grass. They wash your car. They, they, they embrace you, right? Yeah. You call your neighbor and say, my son is, or daughter is a drug addict, right? And they pull their shades down, tell the kids to stay away from you, avoid you in the supermarket, like somehow it's contagious, right? They treat you in a way that is certainly less than loving, less than kind, right? And when a person like you, with the platform that you have, stands out and says the things that you say, it is so incredibly helpful, right, for those families, for those families to say, like, look, look, Miss America is talking about it. I remember, uh, you know, four years ago during the uh, presidential debates, right? On the stage, all the Republican candidates were all on the stage together and they were all talking about it, right? Um, all the Democratic candidates were on the stage together. They were all talking about it. It was very, very mainstream by that point. It was on the front page of the newspaper constantly at that point. And uh, the thing about this epidemic for me is, see, I come from a place very similar to Philadelphia. I come from Boston. I come from the inner city. I come from a very, very tough neighborhood. And uh, people have been dying from overdoses and drugs forever, right? And the difference is, is that I think many of those people, their complexion was different, right? Mm -hmm. They were, they were not, you know, middle-class white America, right? They were, they were people that, like I said, that grew up in my neighborhood. They were black and brown people. They were people from lower economic standing. And it wasn't, there were no candlelight vigils. There were no marches. There were no focus on this, right? And then when this thing started to attack communities, uh, you know, upper middle-class communities, people that, have a voice uh, and they started to use it, it really started to make a difference. I remember back in the late 90s in Boston, in in Oxycontin was already a thing. People in that neighborhood in Boston were already sort of like the criminals were robbing drugstores. They weren't robbing banks anymore. They were robbing drugstores. And all these young kids were all strung out on these Oxycontins and then they couldn't get any more. And the thought of using a needle was so sort of taboo to them. I mean, we had a rash of suicides in our city from these kids and nobody could figure it out, right? Nobody could figure out why is this happening, but it's directly related to the introduction of Oxycontin and when people started to become aware of it. Um, So when a person like you, young, bright, articulate, beautiful, that has this national and global platform, stands up and says, this is not right. People are people. People have an illness. We need to address the illness. We don't need to shun the person. We need to shun the the products that they're being force fed, right? We need to look at these companies and start to address that. Uh, it means so much to people. It means so much to family. So, I want to, again, thank you for that. Um, and, and I'm interested to know what the page, how the pageant felt about you and your platform early on. I, it was actually really well received. I think that 
one of the biggest roles I have as Miss America is to travel around this country and advocate for a cause um, of my choice, but it helps me, it helps to have something that's incredibly relevant. And I will tell you that every time I talk about this issue, you know, it seems a little, you know, taboo maybe for a Miss America mm -hmm. to be talking about drugs and alcohol and all of these different substances, but it has been so beautifully received. We have so many different women that talk about issues that you might not expect. And there were other women that had um, drug abuse, potentially platforms that I were, was able to collaborate with at Miss America, particularly Miss Vermont comes to mind. And she, her two uncles were both um, addicted to opioids for many, many years. And she spends her time also advocating for this issue, but kind of from a different lens. She talks a lot about the stigma. And I remember standing backstage with her and we were talking about it and I was talking how this was my issue. And I said something about, well, are your, are your uncles clean now? And she said, you know, what's really interesting is that using the word clean inherently says that someone was dirty. And it's those particular types of language, maybe calling someone a junkie, saying is someone right. clean, is the, these particular terms that seem really benign when we're talking about them can actually be really damaging and promote that kind of stigma. So the moral of the story is I am really lucky that I am not the only one in the Miss America organization who is talking about subjects like this that are really hard. And I get to team up with those people now across the country and continue to fight this battle with them. And I've learned a lot because I'm still a doctor of pharmacy student. I'm one year into my four year program. And I have a lot to learn and I don't pretend to be an expert on this. And I have had mm -hmm. the opportunity to hear from the people that are quite literally fighting this battle themselves, hear from doctors who are helping to treat these people and be able to be an advocate for those people and be the liaison. Um, I've gotten the opportunity to be a voice um, to the DEA, to the CDC, and work with these people in a way that I could have never imagined. And so I feel like if I can be an advocate for those people, because mm -hmm. going back to that sense of like, you know, I talk to I talk to kids about this also, and I explain to them, you know, you can make a bad choice, and you know, you can upset your friend, and maybe you can say sorry, or maybe you upset your parents, but you can make a bad choice, one bad choice, only one and choose to ingest some type of substance and you could lose your life or you could end up fighting potentially a physical addiction for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a really crazy opportunity to be able to advocate for those people because I've made mistakes in my life. I'm not perfect. I've made so many mistakes and that's the exact, but, or potentially the exact same thing that someone who is battling an addiction has, has gone through. And that's no different than mine. They just have a different battle that they are facing. There's mm -hmm. also a huge problem in our country that we fail to address mental health, which is a continued problem. I have battled mental health issues throughout my life. I was very open about that as I competed for Miss America. And that's a piece that sometimes we forget about because why are people potentially taking substances when maybe they have an underlying cause that we need to treat them emotionally as well. And the last thing that you should do to someone who is struggling is to shun them. If we want to give people the opportunity to get well and get better, exactly like what you were saying, like bringing a casserole over and you know supporting that person and helping them, why are we turning our heads from the people that need us the most? Um, and so it is, 
been something crazy to talk about as Miss America, but I will tell you as I travel around or when I was actually able to travel around, <laughs> the the responses and the hugs and you know the, the stories that I get from people who are recovered, who are currently battling addiction is just, it warms my heart and it's probably one of the most fulfilling things that I can do with this year. You know, you not only have this platform, right, but you also, now you're in school and you have the ability to affect change from within, right? And that's a different kind of platform, right? You actually will be on the front lines, right? You will, you'll have the ear of, because I can only imagine that fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, right, you're always going to be Miss America, right? So if you go to work for one of these pharmaceutical companies, right, you're still going to be Miss America, right? They're going to be like, hey, we have Miss America working for us, right? So in addition to maybe you doing pharmacy work, right, they're going to want you out there, right? They're going to want you. So you will have the ability to affect change from within, which is critical, right? We haven't had many voices. Um, I talk to medical professionals all the time and they, and they still, after all of that's gone on in this country in the last, in particular, 10 years, the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. They still only spend about an hour and a half in medical school on addiction. It's insane. Not crazy. Right. How, how are we going to, how are we going to get strong voices from within unless they bring it with them from their families? Like you said, many people, most people have somebody now that they're related to or are close to or work with that has either themselves or a family member have had addiction issues. Right. Unless they bring, unless those medical professionals bring it with them, they're not going to get it in school. So that means there are no voices from within unless, you know, a lot of people, and I don't want to, I don't want to, I hate to put everybody in the same category because there are many great medical professionals out there that have just taken it upon themselves. Right. And that's it. You have to take it upon yourself um, to become an advocate for change, to say, to, to change your, your thought process on what am I going to give a patient? Right. Um, so you're going to be on the inside. Are you, are, you ready to, are you ready to do battle with these folks? I think I am. And particularly, I feel like I have an ethical obligation as someone who, number one, could potentially be handing that medication over the counter to a patient and wants to work in, a pharmaceutical, in the pharmaceutical industry, that I want to be the advocate and I want to put that work toward educating. And I think that education is one of the most important ways that we can do this. And so talking about, you know, medical professionals, MDs, doctors, not necessarily always getting that particular education on when to use these and how much. So there's so many different variables. And I don't really think I understood until I entered a doctor of pharmacy program, really how much pharmacists can offer into this equation. Pharmacists are now collaborating on teams, going on rounds with doctors around the hospital, and they're functioning as a member of that treatment team. And we are the drug experts. And so we are able to help educate, you know, maybe that doctor is the diagnostic expert. They know exactly what's going on with that patient and we can help come up with the right treatment plan and think about those long-term effects and think about the ways, maybe the alternatives that we can use to treat that patient. Um, And so I feel like I have a huge responsibility to 
advocate and educate people from the medical profession and then also people taking these medications because Mm -hmm. as a pharmacist one of your jobs is to empower your patients with knowledge and so knowing that if this is been prescribed by their doctor and you know they are going to take this medication knowing that they know the risks and if you watch the pharmacist docuseries you can see dan do this and i love that he does it because he's telling these patients you do realize that this medication is incredibly strong I'm a little bit concerned about how much your doctor's giving you. He's calling the doctor saying, why are you giving my patient this? And that's exactly what a good pharmacist should do is be questioning that if they don't think that it's the right treatment plan. And so I hope to really empower patients, but also providers to, to really think about this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why I'm really excited that I've been able to pair, partner up with Dan and fight this fight together. Um, I'm ready to go to battle for this. And it's been a wonderful opportunity to use Miss America as a way to go to battle for this. Because for some reason, people will listen to me a little bit differently when I have a sparkly hat on than when I don't. Um, And I might not be able to wear my sparkly hat forever, but I can wear it for now. Do you get to keep the sparkly hat forever? I do get to keep it forever, right. um, which is a pretty cool memento, but I, I can't wear it after I'm not Miss America. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I want to tell you something. We've been talking about stigma. You've also, I think, to lighten the mood just a little bit, you've done mm-hmm. an incredible amount of stigma ending when it comes to beauty contestants. And, uh, and you know, I mean, listen, People are, many of the people that are in these contests are people that have been doing this their entire lives, right? Like since they were little, young little girls, they've been in these beauty contests and this has been their goal for, for always, right? This is what they've strived to do. Uh, We did a, we did an event on the Boston Common on Overdose Awareness Day in Massachusetts uh, to, uh, I think it was this past summer. And uh, so we were on a stage, we have speakers, we have uh, a slideshow showing families and people who have lost their battle with this thing and, um, and flags that re- each flag represents a person that has lost their battle with this thing. And uh, so I was kind of part of an organizing team. And, uh, and so somebody was like, oh, Miss Somebody, right? It was definitely not Miss America because when you say Miss America, people, they perk up. But it was yeah. just, you know, it was just a young woman who was, that was her thing. And she won a contest somewhere around the New England area. And they were like, yeah, she's, she's going she's gonna to be here. And I was like, okay. And what is she going to do? Like, I want to know what everyone that's going on that stage is going to do, right? Because we also want to make sure that everybody is represented on that stage, right? So we want people from all genders, all colors, all backgrounds, as best we can do to be representative of this thing does not discriminate, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I can only say that she was not as engaging as you are. She was just very quiet and she just, you know, she just did the wave thing. But I still, I got a chance to talk to her afterwards and she just said, I just think it's, I just think it's important that I'm here right? It's important for me that I'm here because it matters to me, right? And I got to talk to her a little bit and she was from a tough little town and, you know, and, and she was like, it matters to me. It matters to me. And I was, I felt bad. I felt bad because I sort of had this preconceived notion of 
you know, whatever it was. And I felt bad about that afterwards because it mattered to her. And, um, and the fact that it matters to you so much is, is really, it, it, it's moving to me. It moves me. It excites me because we need people from all walks of life. And anybody with a platform, we absolutely need. Anybody that has people's ears and people's eyes, we need them. We, um, yeah. So we do events. We do these opioid uh, uh, youth summits. And they range from 5,000 to 10,000 kids per event. And uh, we actually did one in Baltimore just before Thanksgiving. And the First Lady of the United States of America showed up. And it was a, an example of what, what I'm talking about right now. And that is this, is that it's Baltimore. Just not long before that, her husband had said some very difficult things about Baltimore. And Baltimore did not res- take it kindly and did not respond well to it. Um, or at least in, not in his mind. They responded well from their own perspective, for sure. And, um, and so it kind of leaked out to the kids as the event was going on that the first lady was there and there was started to be a little bit of negative noise. And I said, somebody needs to get out there and talk to those kids. And they go, oh, yeah, that, that'd be you. <laughs> I was like, what? And so I went out and, and I said, this is not a black or white, rich or poor issue, right? People are dying. People are burying their children. So anybody that wants to get involved in this fight, particularly anybody that has a platform, is welcome here. And, uh, and, and I mean that. And the more high-profile people we have standing up, the better off we're going to be. Um, you know, you talked about educating children. And uh, so, you know, we, like I said, we do these big events and, um, and I'm partnered with the DEA. We're actually, that is a, we're on tour with the DEA on those events. And your Amazing. name, your name came up the other day and I didn't bring it up because I like to brag. I like to brag when I say I'm interviewing Miss America, right? Mm-hmm. I like to brag about that a little bit. And, but yeah. the DEA brought your name up because we cannot do these events live in person anymore. So we're looking at virtual options. And my, my friend, Sean Ferns, who is in charge, he's the head of the educational component of the DEA, yep. was like, oh, what about Miss America? We got to find a place for Miss America. She's amazing. I've spoken to her. She's incredible. So people are taking notice. And people in, in places that it matters are taking notice. That has been the most wonderful piece of this because... If I had only imagined, I mean, I, I can do so much as myself, as Camille, going around the country and being an advocate, but to be able to work with places like the DEA and the CDC was only a dream of mine to be able to collaborate with. And going into the DEA for the first time was actually kind of scary because when you're a pharmacy student, usually if you're a pharmacist or a student pharmacist and you end up in the DEA, it's not usually for a good reason. <laughs> and so it was a little intimidating at first. And being able to, first of all, know that they respected me as someone who could fight this issue alongside of them, really, I think, is a testament to what Miss America has become in, in history, because it wasn't always like this. And Miss mm-hmm. America wasn't always respected as a person who was a strong advocate and had that background. And 
So talking about, you know, changing the stigma of what it means to be Miss America in 2020, I feel like moments like that have proved that I have been somewhat effective in that and that I'm taken seriously in this fight. And for that, I am so incredibly grateful. Um, and it has been really meaningful to be able to make an impact in that way. And so we, were, we had collaborated to do National Drug Take Back Day. I had done some public service announcements for them. And that got moved um, because of COVID. But I think that sure. it's important because, you know, we're, we have this global pandemic that's happening right mm -hmm. now. and It's affected the way that we all do our jobs. But we also have a global pandemic that's called the opioid crisis. And that's been happening far before COVID. And we don't necessarily shut down the country and stop all the things that we are doing. In fact, that's continuing so much as we all sit here and stop at home. Mm -hmm. And those those people that are currently battling opioid addiction um, are fighting that behind the scenes and their lives have changed too. And so I continuously think of that as I'm here at home is how are those people coping with that? Um, and what can I do to help them from my house basically? So let me ask you, if you had to categorize, say maybe your mm -hmm. top two yeah. tools, right? What you think we need to do to change the current atmosphere in, as it relates to addiction, in particular, the opioid addiction? Is it education? Is it, you know, do we need to decriminalize? Is, I mean, there's so many different platforms, there's so many different people, so many different thoughts about how we can sort of eradicate. Is there, is there a, one or two things that you think are absolutely critical that we cannot live without? Um, from my perspective, I think the first thing is education because I feel like education will help put out the fire, which can then stop the younger generation from coming up and being affected by this. Mm -hmm. So that would be number one. And that's something that I do a lot of um, because if I can stop, but there's also the, you know, that's hard though, because it's also including education of providers because we see so many of these opioid addictions stem from prescription medications that are very much legal prescriptions for different procedures that that's mm. a huge cause of addiction as well. So we also need to educate those providers and the patients. The decriminalization part is something that I have really learned a lot about. I wasn't sure how I felt about it originally when I first heard about, you know, the entire Portugal flip that potentially we're talking about. And Portugal is a great example of a country that has decriminalized and it's really decreased their, their opioid um, overdoses and deaths. I wasn't really sure how I felt about it, but looking at it and seeing how much time, money, and effort that we are spending trying to lock up people who are afflicted by a, an addiction, which I consider mm -hmm. to be a disease, seems really backward when we should be prosecuting the people that are giving these medications away and, you know, like drug dealers, people that are bringing this, these substances into the country, um, that those are the people that we need to be focusing on. And we need to be focusing as much effort on to helping rehabilitate the people that are affected by addiction. And why are we, we're not going to, I just went to a conference probably in February where someone said to me, we're not going to arrest our way out of this problem. And I think that mm -hmm. that stuck with me so much because it didn't really make sense to me until he said it that way. We can't arrest people out of addiction. We have to right. treat them for addiction. And right. sometimes, you know, 
do you do prison facilities even necessarily have the tools and resources? What about medication assisted treatment? What are, are how are we how are we helping these people? Because in reality, these are human beings. We have to treat them like human beings. Mm -hmm. And we're not just going to put them in a cell and lock them up and think that the problem of addiction is going to go away. So I think that education is a huge piece, but I'm also very interested in pursuing the idea of decriminalization. Not that that's something that we can all do from the home or, you know, work on right. individually, but that is something that I hope to be able to be a part of. I know mm -hmm. that's particularly important to Dan as well. Um, and something that I have been able to, to kind of talk about a little bit more. And, you know, it's very interesting because in a role like Miss America, sometimes just kind of like what you were talking about, that woman that came to the event who was a title holder. Sometimes yeah. it's just important, even if I can't be the one going into going on Capitol Hill and advocating for decriminalization, just the idea that I say, you know what, this is something that I think it's important for me to either physically be there or virtually be there or just lend my support to. I mm -hmm. think that that is just as important and something that I'm really starting to learn about and seeing the value of. And, you know, it's interesting when you see a model like Portugal who's improving so much right. um, because it's, it, it makes more sense to spend that time and the money and the, mm -hmm. those resources on helping those people rather than just giving them, uh, especially the charges and those felony charges that can then impact them for so long. They can't get housing. They can't get jobs they then will spiral back into the circle that mm -hmm. they went right from and how is that helping them so there's so many moving pieces and this is such a dynamic issue that it's so much more than just i am addicted to a substance physically it's my environment right. it's what why am i doing this how did this happen and what are the ways that i can work to get out of this situation and how is the government working with that what are my charges do i have access? Do I have health care? Am I able right. to get to a rehab facility? Is there space? So many issues. And so it is an issue that I'm particularly interested in now. So right. no, those are, that's, that's my long answer. It's such a complex issue, right? It is. It's such a, con and, and it's, it's interesting how all of these different issues weave together, right? So when we talk about decriminalization, I feel like a lot of people that have a decriminalization platform, if you will, um, and maybe it's me because sometimes I have a way of hearing things that doesn't always compute. I've been hitting the head a lot. Um, but it, I feel like they, they could probably do a better job of saying, okay, it, it's the reallocation of these resources that we need to focus on, right? When you say decriminalization, I think sometimes people hear that and then they stop listening, right? They're like, okay, we want to make it legal, right? Um, Not legal Yeah, <laughs> right. But that's, I think, what the general public, for the most part, I think sometimes hears. And then when you think about the stigma, right? So stigma is much bigger than, oh, it's it, it stigma means in somebody's mind somehow this is your own fault yeah. right that is a terrible thing to hear right but when you sit and you think about it because of a lack of education or a lack of understanding about this particular subject and a lack of personal knowledge people yeah. they just don't get it they just don't they would like well if this thing is doing all this damage to you, why don't you just stop, 
right? Yeah. And I think the best way I've found to try to explain it to an average person that, with a, with, that doesn't have a real understanding is the thing that you see at, that is tearing that person's life apart, they see as the thing holding their life together, right? That substance is holding their life together at this moment because of the physical addiction, the mental obsession, the mental addiction, right? The emotional addiction to this substance. And that's, I think, once we start to help people understand that sort of trying to get their mind in that place, I think we'll have a better job. uh, We'll do a better job of, of sort of educating those folks and they'll do a better job of understanding what it is that a person who is, uh, is addicted, um, is dealing with. And the other thing is, is I know you said something and I've, and and I've been learning more as I go, I'm a person in long-term recovery. Right. Mm -hmm. And I use the word clean, right. I, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a clean and sober person, right. That's the language that I learned when I first started to try to get my life back. Right. And, um, and, and I don't use, I'm not politically correct. A lot of the times when I use the language that I use to describe people who suffer from, cause I, and the language keeps changing, right? It's yeah. substance use disorder, things like, and, and I'm just trying to catch up, right? I'm trying to, I'm trying to get in front of people and, and try to help families not have to bury their children. I'm trying to educate children and, and sometimes I'm guilty of not using the right language, but I think, I don't know, maybe I think I get a pass because I'm a person in recovery and I get to call myself whatever I want. I don't, nobody gets to tell me what I get to call myself. And I think a lot of people in recovery, I think feel that way, right? You don't get to tell me what I get to identify, how I get to identify myself, which is really the story of America now, right? People can identify themselves whatever way they want to identify themselves with. Um, but we, we are, I think we're being misled a little bit about numbers. We talked about that earlier about, you know, the overdose deaths are slightly declining, right? But I think the addictive substance use has skyrocketed. I think it continues to get worse and to get higher and kids are starting younger and younger. And, uh, and so we are still very much on the front lines of an absolute war. And, um, you know, we're, we're, we're getting an example right now of with this pandemic, right? So pandemic shut the country down, right? More people, at least in many States, more people, have died from overdoses in the last many months, many years, than have died from COVID, right? Yeah. And I think people get offended when you talk about that. I think people, you know, I think in this country we are, we're sort of, man, I walk a tightrope a lot, <laughs> but we're sort of being uh, like, if you don't wear a mask and you don't, quarantine and you don't do all these things, then somehow you're being unpatriotic. Right. And I don't know about that. Right. I don't, I just don't know about that. I'm not, maybe I'm not smart enough to to get it, but, um, we have, so I think when you compare problems, when you compare, uh, 
uh, epidemics and pandemics and things of that nature, sometimes people that don't understand can have a tendency to, to get angry or get upset or get insulted by that. Right. But the facts are the facts. Right. And in, in, in 2018, we buried somewhere in the area of about 72,000 Americans from overdoses. Right. And that's, those numbers, and Dan's going to be coming back on with us in a few minutes to talk to us, and, and he'll speak to that. I think that those numbers are inaccurate, right? Because unlike COVID, when somebody now dies in the hospital, whatever they die from, they want to attribute it to COVID, right? Mm-hmm. When, it comes to, when it comes to overdoses, it's sort of the opposite. Many families don't want that written on their, their child's death certificate, right? Uh, many people don't want to talk about that. They don't want that to be public. They don't want, and, and, uh, and you know, and I, I guess I can understand that, right? And then there are many people that have the obituaries. They write the obituaries themselves, and they tell the world, my child was fully addicted. My child was injured playing basketball, broke their leg, got prescribed a deadly medication, and our lives were turned upside down for the next year, two years, three years, and they lost their battle, right? That is so courageous for a family to share that information with, with the world, right? And it's almost the exact opposite, you know? Um, but anyways, so time is limited. Um, I want to tell you that um, I already know that you and I are going to do more together, um, because of the connection to the DEA and, and sort of the platform, right? We're out there. As soon as we can be together in a room with 10,000 kids again, which I pray comes because it's so hugely impactful, it sends a message to them that this is a huge problem and we're addressing it in a huge way, Right. I can't wait to stand with you on stage and, and to talk to kids and educate kids. And, um, and I want to thank you again, right, for, uh, for the difference that you're able to make and the challenge that you're willing to accept, right, that you want to make a difference, you want to make a change. And it's not about, you know, riding on the back of a convertible, right? You, you, I mean, you are a person that is going to play a critical role in this, this epidemic that we're facing, right? And I believe that you're up to the challenge. I think you're, I think you're awesome, right? Thank you. I mean, can, can I ask you, how old are you? I'm 24. 24 years old, right? Yeah. So I get, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, it's been so long since I was 24 that I don't remember <laughs> what it was like to be 24, but... You're, you're sharp. You're sharp. I mean, some people are smart. Some people are beautiful. Some people are athletic. Some people are, you seem to be the whole package, if you will. Right. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy and excited about your future because it's so aligned with the future of families and people who are suffering and maybe, uh, together we can we can make a difference so thank you so much i appreciate that so much and i 
I think there's some reason why I, as the person I am, and I'm very true to myself throughout this process. And it's one of the things that I talk about throughout my year, in addition to science and um, medication safety, is just being yourself. And for some reason, the universe wanted me to do this job this year. Um, and I feel like it's the right time in so many ways for me to do this. And it's so needed. And so I'm grateful to be able to take that role. Hey guys, Jim Wahlberg here from The Bottom Line. Listen, I just want to remind you, please make sure you subscribe to our YouTube page at Wall Street Productions. And I also want to remind you, push that little bell. Just push it, man. It takes one second. Then that will notify you when anything's going on with The Bottom Line. Thanks.